and of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Let's pray together. Almighty God, what a wonderful privilege that we have today to open this book in front of us and to read and to hear the very words of God. We pray that as we study this text today and as we go through this journey of VBS this week, that we would be reminded again and again how much, Lord, you love us and what a wonderful act of grace it is, God, that you have given us a written record, a written word that would point us to the living word that is your Son, Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, we pray you would move in our midst as your word is proclaimed. God, I pray it is proclaimed faithfully and let it go forth with power to accomplish its purpose. Lord, bring salvation to the lost. Lord, bring edification to the saints as we gather around your holy word today. It is in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Today we find ourselves in this text that is in the fourth gospel. The word gospel means the good news of Jesus Christ. It can be used in a, uh, a very broad sense. Any kind of message that we bring, the saving message of Jesus Christ in and of itself is the gospel. But in the Bible we have four books there that open the New Testament. They are referred to as the gospels, uh, uppercase G. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of these testify uh, to the life of Christ, who He is and what He did as He came to this earth. And so if we find ourselves today in the fourth gospel, and each specific gospel has its own emphasis regarding who Jesus is and what He has accomplished. And we see a lot of this emphasis come out in John's gospel in these two verses in front of us here this morning. Now, the context in which we find this is immediately after the resurrection appearance of Christ to the disciples the first time without Thomas and then the second time with Thomas. Let's read these verses and let's look at the common theme in this that we find in our text today also. Back in verse 19 of chapter 20. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, this is the day that Christ rose from the dead. And when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands 
the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here with your hand and put it to my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. And so we see in this text so many themes that are found again in our Scripture today. In fact, these are the main emphases of the entire Gospel of John. This text is connected with ours today. Of course, grammatically, we see the word therefore in verse 30. And if you've listened to me preach long enough, you know where I'm going right now. You don't pass the word therefore until you remember what it's there for. It's a connecting word. And so what we read in these two verses in 30 and 31 are directly connected to what we just read, the scenes of Jesus' appearance to his disciples. So it's connected grammatically, but also thematically. Look at the main words that come up over and over again and the themes over and over again in those verses. First of all, disciples. Verse 19, the disciples. Verse 20, the disciples rejoice. Also, verse 25, so the other disciples were saying to him. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again present. And then in our uh, text, we read in verse 30, these miracles performed in the presence of the disciples. So it's the theme of those who Jesus called to be with him. Those who walked side by side with him, those who saw him, those who heard his teachings, they were witnesses. So disciples, but we also see the, the theme of seeing, of seeing. Verse 20, Jesus showed them his hands and his side. Verse 25, the disciples were saying to him, and it's repetitively they kept saying to him, we have seen the Lord, we have seen the Lord. Thomas says, unless I see, I will not believe. Verse 27, Jesus said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. And Jesus said, you have believed because you have seen me. But also connected with seeing is the idea of believing, of faith. When the disciples saw him, they believed and they rejoiced. Thomas said, unless I see, I will not believe. And Jesus said to him, see my hands and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Now, some of us like to give Thomas a, a hard time in this text because there's Thomas and he should be a man of faith. He should believe. The disciples said Jesus is risen. We've seen him. And, and he's a skeptic. Thomas is a realist. And also Thomas did not have the benefit of the other disciples. You see, they saw Jesus. He showed them his hands and his side and they rejoiced when they saw him. So, the disciples and, and Thomas were really not that different except he was not there during the first experience. And Jesus does not necessarily chastise him, but he says to him, see what the other guys have seen and no longer be unbelieving, but believe. 
But then they see the idea there, Jesus says, Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. And that's what I believe these two verses are all about. Believing what we not, have not necessarily seen, but coming to faith. So we see in these verses here the, the theme, the thesis statement for all of John's gospel. And first of all, we see the reality of the gospel. Verse 30, the saving message about Jesus Christ is rooted in historical facts. John is saying these events did not occur in a vacuum somewhere. They occurred in space and time here on earth. The reality of the gospel, we see John mentions the wonders of Jesus' signs. The wonders of his signs. He says, therefore, in connection with those who will be blessed by believing even though they have not seen. Therefore, John says this, many other signs, many other attesting miracles that Jesus performed. Now the signs are always meant to point to something. When you go into Florida and immediately see all those billboards that says Disney World, that doesn't mean you've arrived yet. They are signs that are meant to point you. You keep going because the signs show you where to go. The signs lead you somewhere to your ultimate destination. And in John's Gospel, he uses the word signs for the miracles of Jesus because these miracles are not to be, meant to be ends in themselves, but they are meant to drive you to something. Many other signs Jesus performed. Now scholars debate what John means by signs. Is it merely the works of Jesus? Or is some of his words meant to be included as signs to point to greater truth, but one commentator I read said that there were 35 times in the Gospels altogether that Jesus performed miracles that we could determine are signs. But 10 times in John's Gospel, specifically chapter 2 through 12, we see Jesus performing these signs. And of course, these signs are meant to point to his person, who he is, and his mission, what he has come to do. The wonders of Jesus' signs, but we also see the witnesses to Jesus' signs. Because John said many other signs Jesus also performed, but these signs were in the presence of the disciples. Again, there is that, that theme that we saw in the text right before us over and over again, disciples. Those who Jesus called to be with Him. Those who Jesus called to, to lead the church, to, to build the church, to be the foundation of the church after He is departed. These disciples, they were present. They were witnesses to these things. And so the, the idea of having eyewitness truth, those who were there who could testify that these things are true. And John says, these things were done in the presence of the disciples, but these many things which are not written in this book. And so already we see that John intentionally selected certain signs. If there's 35 in the Gospels and John only includes 10, we already see there that John is being particular about this. There is a method. There is a reason why John has selected these things. Of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote... But through the Spirit's inspiration, there was intentionality about the specific signs that John wrote about. And so in that, we learn this. The Gospels in general, and John's 
gospel, he tells us right away here clearly, the gospels are not meant to be strictly biographical stories. They're not meant to be objective. Let me just tell you these things about Jesus. There is a reason. There is a purpose behind these writings. And John lays that out for us clearly in the next verse. We see the wonders of his signs, the witnesses of his signs point to the reality of the gospel. The saying, seeing is believing, right? People will often say that. One time I was talking to a guy who was a skeptic, and he said, you know, if God would just part the clouds, stick his head out, wave at me, then I would believe there is a God. And you know, that, that sounds logical. However, Jesus performed many signs in the Gospels, and not every time that Jesus performed these signs did it lead to saving faith among those who were present. Specifically in chapter 6, Jesus fed the 5,000. That was a sign to point to the fact that Jesus was the bread of life and He could satisfy the soul eternally. But those who were there in the presence, they ate and they got their stomachs full and they said, wow, wouldn't it be great if this God was our King? We'd never go hungry. He could give us all the food that we could ever eat. They were thinking with their, with their stomachs. These were, were true men, right? We think with our stomachs too often times. But not everybody who witnessed the miracles of Jesus came to saving faith. Jesus would say, here's your sign. They would not always see the signs, even though the signs are right in front of them. The reality of the gospel, there were eyewitnesses there present. John was one of them. And John wrote. Now we see the reason for his gospel in verse 31. The reason for John writing, the reason for this saving message of Jesus Christ. John says these things, verse 31, these that John has recorded have been written. These things have been written. In the earliest stages of Christianity, the stories of Jesus were transmitted orally. People would, would tell, they would testify, I was there, let me tell you about what I saw. But over time, it became evidence that there was a need to write these things down. As Christianity spread, there was a practical need to make sure everybody was on the same page. There was also this understanding that as the disciples began to die off, the apostles began to die, that if Christianity was going to advance beyond that generation, there needed to be a written form, a written instruction about these things. And John says, these things have been written so that... So that's a, a purpose clause. John tells, we don't have to, to guess. Have you ever read something and then at the end of you wonder, what's the point? <laughs> what were they trying to accomplish? John leaves no doubts. These things I have written so that. Here is the purpose. Here is the key to unlock the entire meaning of this gospel. It's how we interpret everything that John wrote in the previous 20 chapters. He wrote, first of all, to invoke personal faith in Jesus. Personal faith. 
He says, these things have been written so that you may believe. These things have been written so that you would have faith. The word believe there, it's the verb form of faith. And in John's writings, John always uses the verb form. For John, faith was something that you do. It's not just something that you have. It's something that you practice. You have faith. These things I have written so that you may believe, so that you may faith. But notice he says, so that you may believe. This is something you must do on your own. You must exercise faith. Saving faith. It's been said before that saving faith has really three components to it. First of all is knowledge. You have to, to know the truth. You have to hear the truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. You have to hear the gospel truth. You have to, to, to have a knowledge of it. But also you have to have assent. It means you've got to agree to it. A lot of people have heard the gospel, but not everybody agrees that it is true. To have saving faith, you must hear it, and you must agree that it is true. But there's a third component that you must have to have saving faith. You've got to go beyond just hearing it and believing it's true. Because if that's all you have, you have a demonic faith. Even the demons believe these things are true. Even the demons believe that Jesus died on a cross for, for sins. Even demons believe Jesus is the Son of God. Even, even the devil believes Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. To have saving faith, you've got to go one step past that, and you've got to have trust. You've got to have consent. You've got to have surrender. It's saying, okay, I hear this. I believe it's true, and then I surrender my life. I stake my eternal destiny upon these things. It's jumping out of the airplane and pulling the ripcord, believing this parachute will save me. And I exercise this. And John is writing so that you may believe, so that you may know and you may agree and you may trust that Jesus is all that John says he is. And you must do this. I can't do it for you. And I wish I could. I'd, I'd faith everybody here into the kingdom right now if I could. But I can only do that for myself. It's a personal faith. John is writing to, to invoke that in your life so that when you read and when you hear you would exercise saving faith in Jesus that's why John wrote this but also John is writing to invoke what we would call propositional faith not just faith in general you hear people sometimes well meaning they'll just say well just have faith sounds pious but faith in what? Faith in who, more specifically? And John is writing so that you may believe, believe what? Specifically that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the proposition to this. That's, that's the, the message to this. That's the substance. You must, you must put your faith in someone specifically. And that person, John, or John writes, is Jesus the propositional faith in Jesus 
First of all, his responsibility to the Father. John lists here a couple of titles for Jesus that, that have meaning. John's not just throwing out titles, throwing out words. And he wants you to believe that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the son of Mary, Jesus that lived approximately 2,000 years ago, born in Bethlehem, raised in Galilee, died in Jerusalem. John is writing so that you believe that this Jesus, first of all, is the Christ. That's his responsibility to the Father, the Christ. The word Christ means Messiah. It means anointed one, the chosen one. John is writing so that you would believe and trust that Jesus is the Messiah. He has come to do the will of the Father. He is the promised one that we read in the Old Testament. He is the seed of the woman who was promised to come and crush the head of the serpent. That He is the seed of Abraham through which all the nations of the world would be blessed and all would be brought into one people of God. He is the son of David who was promised to sit upon the throne and to rule God's people for, for eternity. All of these, these promises of Jesus, all these promises of the Messiah in the Old Testament are wrapped up in this term, the Christ. And John is writing so that you may believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those promises. And he, that He came to do a specific assignment to rescue, to redeem God's people from sin. He came to be the prophet, to proclaim the truth of God, to, to Himself be the living Word. He came to be the priest, the one who, who makes atonement for, the one who, who intercedes and ushers the sinner into the presence of the Holy God. He came to be the priest. He came to be the king, to rule and to reign with justice and righteousness upon the throne. Jesus, John says, is the Christ, and I am writing these things. I have recorded these signs to point you in the direction that you may believe, that you may exercise saving faith in this Jesus who is the Christ in His responsibility to the, to the Father that Jesus was sent to do these things. But also, His relationship to the Father. I'm writing these things so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, but He's also the Son of God. Throughout John's Gospel, we see this unique relationship of Jesus with His Father. And according to the New Testament, those who, who are saved become children of God. To those who believe in His name, John says in the first chapter, to those who believe, we are given the right to become children of God, but Jesus doesn't become the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God, eternally the Son of God. John's Gospel talked about the different emphases that the four writers have on Jesus. John's Gospel more than the others, even though it's, it's in the others as well, but John's Gospel emphasizes the divinity of Jesus, that He is God, that He is the Lord of all creation. In the beginning was the Word, 
The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then John says in John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. So John is writing these things so that we would understand this relationship of Jesus to the Father, that He is God incarnate. And that He has come to do the will of the Father. He has come to be, according to John 1.29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. As John is writing these things, he's writing to invoke this faith, this saving faith, this personal propositional faith, so that you would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, He's the Messiah, He's come to do the will of His Father because He is the Son of God. So that when you put your faith in Jesus, you need to know who you are believing in and why you are believing in Him. Specifically what He has done for you. He is the Lamb of God who has taken away your sin by dying on the cross as your substitute by taking your sin debt upon Himself and then imputing His righteousness to you so that you may stand before God in the Son as one who is righteous not by your own works but what Christ has done for you through His shed blood. We were talking yesterday at our cottage prayer meeting there at Rhonda and Gary's house about all the experienced nurses we have in our church. We are, we are blessed with an abundance of nurses that if at any given time there was a medical emergency, we would have several qualified individuals. And we've seen that, uh, unfortunately, a couple of years ago uh, in the middle of one of our services. But at any given moment, if there's a medical emergency, there are people qualified to step in and help to save a life. But spiritually speaking, with our eternal destiny, John is writing these things so that we may believe that Jesus is the only one solely qualified to save. Because He alone is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He alone is God made man so that He might take our place on the cross. He alone died for your sin and rose again. John is writing these things to prove to you that Jesus is uniquely qualified to save you. And John is also writing these things to show you that the disciples, those who were there, those who were eyewitnesses, they are uniquely qualified to testify to these truths. In the first epistle of John, in the, right at the very beginning, he says, those who were with him, those who saw him, those who heard him, those who, who touched him, we are those who testify these things to you. It's John's emphasis that they were there. They can testify. He, he can say, because of these signs Jesus performed in our presence, we write these things so that you too may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's why he's writing. So that we would be on the same page as those men who walked with him 2,000 years ago. That we might believe the same things they believed. Those who were there. 
The reason for the gospel is to invoke faith, saving faith. Then the result of these things. Verse 31 ends with the result after receiving this truth and believing. John says, we write these things, you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, here's the result. You may have life in His name. His reason for writing is that you would have faith and and the result of that faith would be life. Now what is meant by that? Scholars wrestle whether John is talking about the lost being saved or whether he's talking about Christians being built up in the faith. I think the best solution that I've seen is he's talking about both because faith will do both. Faith in Jesus Christ will accomplish both of those things. It's the creation, first of all, of saving faith. I am writing these things so that you may believe that believing you may have life. In other words, John is saying without believing, you won't have life. I'm writing to invoke belief. I'm writing to invoke faith so that you may have life. Without that faith, you will have no life. John's gospel is... is Clearly evangelistic. Most of us are familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. And whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's evangelistic. But John also says in John 3, verse 36, He who believes in the Son, he who faiths in the Son, has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So John clearly says there's a choice, there's a decision that must be made. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. It all hinges upon whether or not you have faith in this Jesus who is the Christ, the Son of God. Your eternal destiny is at stake. Have you come to a place where you have heard the gospel? Of course you have. You've heard it today. If you come to a place where you agree with, you assent to those truths, I hope and pray that you do. But even beyond that, have you come to a place where you trust in this gospel message? Where you surrender and you give Jesus your entire life and you lay down your life for Him who has laid down His life for you? Have you done that? If not, the wrath of God abides on you already. You're a walking dead man. But if you have believed in this Son whom John testifies says, I was there. If you believe in this Son, you may have life. Evangelistic life. The power of God for salvation. John is writing to save the lost by presenting these evidences. Eyewitness testimony. So there's the creation of saving faith. There's also the continuation of sanctifying faith. In other words, you have exercised saving faith in Christ But now John is writing so that you may have life. You've already received this life. But John is writing to give you abundant life. Life in both the present and in the future reality. Now, when we think of eternal life, many of us think that when I die, I will go to heaven and live forever. Of course, eternal life does mean that. But eternal life does not begin when you die. Eternal life begins when you believe. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, 
John writes in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Past tense. So to believe in Jesus means that we pass from death to life. That we pass from wrath into peace. The peace of God. By believing in Jesus. And John is writing to an audience to give them certainty. He's writing to the church in the first century. Jews and Gentiles who have come to a place where they've exercised faith in Christ and now they are dealing with persecutions. They're dealing with tribulation and John is writing to encourage them, to motivate them. Keep on faithing. I'm writing so that you may believe that believing you may have life, not just when you die and go to heaven, but you would have life now. Life abundant. That your joy would be made complete even in the face of difficulty and hardship. Today, if you are a believer and you read this gospel, that John has written, he's writing that so that you may have life. I say, preacher, I'm already saved. Yeah, I understand that. But do you understand right now you have life? You have the Spirit of God living in you. You have already passed from death to life. You are born again. Do you understand that? Does that not excite you? Does that not motivate you? Does that not cause you to persevere? And hang on tightly to this Christ who is the Son of God. John is writing for that reason also. But thirdly, I believe it's the correction of suspicious faith. John says that believing you may have life in His name, specifically not just any Jesus, because there's a lot of religious groups that try to invoke the name of Jesus, but when you dig a little deeper... This Jesus whom they are believing, this Jesus whom they are presenting is very different from the Jesus that John presents. So we need to have this writing before us to understand we have life and to keep us on that right path that we might represent His true identity. In John's day, there were a lot of divergent views even then about Jesus. A lot of people writing stuff about Jesus that John says was just not true. And John says, if you're going to believe anybody's testimony about Jesus, why don't you believe those who were there with him? Why don't you believe those who spent three years next to him and walked in his footsteps and heard his teaching and saw his miracles and were eyewitnesses to these things? Why don't you believe what we have to say and not those other views? He was writing to prevent heretical doctrine even in the first century. How much more so do we need that now, today? We come to the gospel that we may have life through believing. It's important to stay rooted in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, according to Jude 3. So John writes these things so that you may believe, and the results of your belief, the results of your faith, is that you would have life, that you might be saved, that you might be sanctified, you might persevere in the truth by knowing who Jesus is. His name represents who He is. His true identity. He is the God-man who came to take your sin debt and give you His righteousness. That transaction is made by believing, by faithing,
in him, specifically the Jesus of the disciples. So we encounter Jesus then by trusting the apostolic witness of Scripture that we have a faith that's in the living word and our faith is tethered to the written word. So we don't have a a faith in a Jesus of our own making, a Jesus of our own design. One of the skits at camp this year was somebody comes to Jesus on the cross and then begins to dress him just like he is. So that when he looks at Jesus, he would see himself and not seeing himself as Jesus sees him. There's a lot of people guilty of that. say, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, well, tell me about this Jesus. Who is he? What has he done for you? Dig a little deeper. It's important for us to stay tethered to this written word so that our faith is in the true living word. You know, some things, though, we have to experience for ourselves. Yesterday, the girls went to King's Island, and in preparation for that, I was trying to tell Kylie about the beast. You know, many of us, how many of y'all have ridden the beast before? You know, most of us have. I was trying to prepare her for that. She had never ridden the beast before, and I was like, you know, it, it's fun, it's, it's fast. And I said, but, you know, it, it, it's kind of a rough ride. You know, it shakes you around quite a bit. You know, I was trying to prepare her for that. And then yesterday, she calls, Daddy, I rode the beast. I said, did it shake you around? She said, no, not really. (laughs) Sometimes our experiences are different. Sometimes we just got to experience it for ourselves. Saving faith is that way. I can stand here all day and share and testify with you who Jesus is and why you must believe in Him. But until you experience it for yourself, until you take that step, you know, it's a leap of faith. It's not a blind leap of faith. It's not a ignorant leap of faith. We're taking a leap of faith towards things that have been testified to by eyewitnesses. But nevertheless, we must take that faith step of faith. You go beyond facts, and then you must move in the next direction. You must exercise your saving faith. And so the question then, can the apostolic gospel truly save me? 2,000 years of transformed lives. Many lives in this room today transformed because of this apostolic gospel and this Jesus who is God made man who has come to earth to save, rescue, and redeem. But you've got to make that choice. You've got to make that decision for yourself. This, the evidence clearly points to yes. Yes, this gospel saves you've got to experience it for yourself over and over again we say every year VBS is one of the most evangelistic events in the modern church we're gathering this week we're exerting a lot of energy obviously decorating and planning and programming we're doing all this with a purpose in mind just like John's was so that boys and girls men and women may encounter the living Jesus by trusting in the witness of the apostles. So this week be prayerful. This week be expectant. Most of all, this week be transformed. Be transformed by the true testimony of His disciples. 
Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Apostle John tells me I can encounter Jesus by trusting in Him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You again for the power of Your Word. We thank You for the truth that